Hello and welcome to Art Dirt, a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. It is the week of July the 4th, and I'm Brandon Zeck. I am Christina Reese. And because it was just July 4th earlier this week, we're going to talk about not flag art, not America art, well, kind of a little bit of both. We're going to talk about political art, and specifically political art that we both like and what we think makes political art good. Mm -hmm. This is a topic that I think we've covered a lot on Glass Tire in the past couple years i think we've seen artists make a lot more political work because of a a number of factors of police brutality of social media of the new uh, administration and american politics it's kind of a grab bag of things that make political art happen or that make artists feel the need yeah and it's happening it's happening throughout really the western world i mean this kind of rightward swing into populism and you know semi-fascism even uh, throughout Western Europe, things that are going on with Brexit and England. So it's, it's, a, it's a trend overall. And, there's, and, to, and to kind of to complement that in a sense, there's also been, I think, a very positive um, swing toward a stronger kind of identity politics in art. That's what I do like. It's not the pedantic and didactic stuff, but I do think that as we open up ourselves to more kinds of narratives, personal narratives, we're seeing uh, a lot more stories about people and their experience of being an American, being a person on this planet. And that, that's all I have for the intro. It's just, um, it's just another trend that's, uh, that's happened. And this conversation, uh, what you're saying, really kind of does mirror the conversation that we had a little while ago about performance art. And this podcast isn't really going to overlap that much, but in terms of personal narratives and stories and things that are happening nowadays, there really is an overlap in that conversation. So we're just going to acknowledge that and then not really touch on it that much throughout the podcast. Right. But let's go, but let's, let's start at the beginning, which is, which is not so much about identity politics as it's just about politics, politics. So, you know, there's always a danger, obviously with art that is um, explicitly political or implicitly political. There's a, a danger of it being propaganda or again, didactic or even almost just juvenile in a sort of uh, a heavy handed satire but let's talk about some work that does work. Yeah, so uh, one of the first artists that comes to mind when I think of political art that works is more or less anything by the longtime Texas artist Mel Chin. Hmm. I've, I've written about some of his work in the past. Houston saw a big retrospective of his work uh, that was organized, I believe, by the New Orleans Museum of Art. And a lot of his work deals with the politics of place and deals with political systems that aren't working and what isn't working within America and makes an effort to point out what that is and how a lot of people agree. A project that I'm specifically thinking of that wrapped up pretty recently was his hundred dollar bill project. And this mm-hmm. was uh, this was before the Flint water crisis, but it was focusing on uh, the issue of childhood lead poisoning in water. It was kind of brought out by Katrina and all of the flooding that happened and the after effects of that. So Melchin's idea was to use an armored truck and go around America getting children, adults, anyone who would listen, 
or anyone who would participate uh, to decorate these $100 bills. And then eventually, of course, you would amass a large number of them over time. And then he would present them to Congress and say, this is the amount of money that people in America want spent to try and fix this problem. And you should put your money where your mouth is, Congress, and do something about it. And this is the kind of thing, it's making people aware, it's doing something that's showing kind of how many people have an interest in this issue. It is a little on the edge of trying to enact real change, but I think it's doing it in a smart way, and kind of how some of these projects happened, it started, I think, more as an art project and became more of a political project that kind of had a little bit of a staff behind it, and it became activism through an art project. So it kind of migrated worlds in a way. Yeah, I mean, what you're touching on here, though, is I, I, it's. I think it's so. And he's he has he's a sophisticated artist, and he's done it in an effective way. But you know, social practice and and community activism and that kind of intersection in what is meant to be art is so tricky. And I think it's. I think a lot of artists are feeling more and more pressure to do that sort of art because institutions and nonprofits and government money and uh, grant money, et cetera, you know, a lot of it is tied in. Yeah. They're tied into this idea that your artwork has to do something, um, has to be something. And I think it's incredibly problematic. Uh, Rainy Knudsen and I did a podcast about, you know, about that kind of thing and what's problematic about it a little while back. I think that, I think that's a danger. I think there's too much of it, of a bad version of it. I think that a lot of artists who really just want to make their work and and follow their own impulses are feeling a tremendous pressure to um, be sort of the good guys. I think it's so hard for art to enact any meaningful change. I think that the the way that art enacts change is simply to raise uh, awareness of a thing, a thing that maybe people hadn't noticed before. I think uh, Post Commodity, the collective, Mm -hmm. which I think is now kind of semi... um, uh, evaporated, but you and I went up to uh, to Texas Tech for the Texas Sculpture Symposium, and and a member of Post Commodity was a keynote speaker. That um, piece that they did called Repellent Fence uh, is so strong. Yeah, so Repellent Fence was uh, a piece where this collective they got a bunch of weather balloons that had kind of this all-seeing eye. Uh, printed on the balloons and then basically floated them at the space where the border is between the U.S. and Mexico. It was striking, and it's these huge scare eyes. It's a big blown-up version of a scare eye. A scare eye is a kind of balloon that people use over their gardens and houses and, and farmland to scare off uh, kind of birds that are being pests. But they used it to sort of stitch together um, both sides of the border, Mexico and, uh, and, and the American side of the border. And they had to negotiate with officials on both sides for a long, long time before they were able to do this. I think the mystery was a huge part of what was seductive about it, is there's nothing pedantic about it. They're not being prescriptive even. It's just people would be able to look up in the sky and see this incredibly striking, strange thing. And if they cared to figure out what it was about or read about it, they could read about what was happening. But no one, post-commodity doesn't like even the term social practice art. They refuse to, to be categorized that way. And I respect that tremendously. I respect an artist who says, you know, don't tell me 
you know, just as I don't want to be told how to think or what I should be thinking or how to feel when I look at art, they don't want to be told what sort of artist they are. And that's one of the things that makes it work. You know, I think, um, I, I want to say that when we, again, I'm talking about like enacting change and acting change in a person. And I just want to briefly go back to when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, and MTV was still a pretty new thing, actually, very new thing. There was a show called Andy Warhol's 15 Minutes, and um, it was 30 minutes long, actually. But it was during the AIDS crisis, and there was something very celebratory in the show and incredibly inclusive. If you watch it now, it's just incredibly inclusive. But and you can sometimes catch some of it on YouTube. I think it gets yanked down a lot. But the artwork that... Um, that artists were doing in the 80s had a nice intersection between identity and and politics that again it felt so personal that it made it sort of universal and that's a that's a trick that good artists have a tendency to pull off and i'm thinking of felix gonzalez torres of course um david voyerovich um you know, even Keith Haring at the time was doing some interesting work around that. So I just, uh, as a teenager, what made me in Irving, Texas, aware of an AIDS crisis without feeling like I was being beaten over the head with it was was these artists doing this smart work. And I, and I, I still really appreciate that. I appreciate it that I didn't feel like I was going to church and being preached at. It was something that I was able to kind of meet them halfway. It was a, it was a sense of discovery. What you're touching on also is the fact that a lot of these individuals were involved in the ACT UP movement, which is more of a political movement than just the artists creating their works individually. And I think we still see this today in terms of creative individuals being very politically involved because one of the things about making art is you were looking at the world and you have a lot of opinions about the world, so you're going to be involved in some way, shape, or form. And I think the ACT UP movement kind of allowed some of these artists that you're talking about to have their intensive political output in terms of like actually trying to enact change within the movement and having a cohort that helped them do that versus having to put it all in their art. It kind of like mm-hmm. subtly influenced their art, or you know, in some ways not so subtly, but it was present in the art without trying to actually be prescriptive and to change things because they had a venue to change things also. That is true. But we need to keep in mind that art rarely has a chance to actually make a difference. Um, as uh, Rainy Knudsen was writing about um, Prospect 4 in New Orleans, this was a couple of years ago, and she uh, kind of reminded us of a Kurt Vonnegut quote about, you know, all the fiction writers leading up to the Vietnam War were all writing about the Vietnam War and how against it they were. In fact, just writers and, and, um, and creative people were doing everything they could to protest the Vietnam War before it happened or as the United States was ramping up to it. It didn't change anything. And it's true right now, too. I mean, if you think about all the satire that goes on on Saturday Night Live or all the late-night talk show hosts who are doing all this comedy about our current administration, it doesn't seem to be moving the needle. I mean, our administration is just doing what it's doing. It's not. It ignores completely the creative people in the world who are trying to say something or do something. I think in a way, the creative people do make this kind of work, just like the comedians make fun of Donald Trump, even though a lot of what Donald Trump does might not be considered funny. Um, 
is a form of coping also. As much as we kind of don't think of, you know, we, we do think of artists having this like high-minded idea of what they're making, and I truly believe they do that because I see so much good art. But at the same time, that art can also be a coping mechanism. Yeah, we all need to blow off some steam. It's a very upsetting time that we're living in. You're absolutely right. I think that when that also is done well, there's a. it's really just kind of hitting on the true absurdity of something. And good satire um, does exactly that. I was listening to an interview with Tina Fey yesterday, and she was talking about winning the Mark Twain Award for her uh, impersonation of Sarah Palin. And those were much more innocent times, if you think back to it. I mean, think about that election and how much more tame it was. We were all up in arms about Sarah Palin. And now, compared to what we've got, that just seems like nothing. But, you know, she said that she and Amy Poehler and Seth Meyers, who wrote those skits, um, they were very, very careful not to have the characterization of Sarah Palin be um, outside the bounds of what Sarah Palin actually was. You know, satire, when it's really careful and really smart, is actually a very subtle thing. And again, that's the problem with people getting overly, overly didactic or overly pedantic with their message, is it just it's loses steam very, very quickly. I haven't watched SNL uh, since Trump was elected. And I don't know why. I'm sure that they're doing the good work. But have you watched it? I have. And sometimes it hits the nail on the head. But a lot of times reality ends up being almost more uh, absurd. Than... Absurd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. I want to go back to something you just mentioned in terms of the messaging being overly didactic. Because one person who was on my list in terms of a who I think of as a successful artist making political work is Barbara Kruger. Mm -hmm. And you can't get more didactic, I think, more or less than Barbara Kruger's white on red, essentially, ads and messages that things are good or things are bad or you should stop doing something. Well, you know why I think it works is because she's truly, truly angry. And I think if you can feel a legit emotion behind the work that's being made, a kind of urgency, I think that we get that message. I was thinking about, you know, we ran, um, we re-ran Christopher Blay's essay about uh, the Childish Gambino video, This Is America, this week, mm -hmm. because it's Fourth of July week. And I rewatched that video about, I don't know, seven or eight times this week. And I love Donald Glover. But, you know, when you feel that level of, of true frustration and anger and almost just uh, uh, throwing your arms up in a kind of pissed off resignation, you, fe you feel it. And I think real anger, when artists get very angry about what's going on in the world, they can make some incredibly strong art and, um, and often do. It's what, what doesn't work is when it's a kind of manufactured outrage, this kind of social justice warrior, I'm going to be angry because I'm supposed to be angry. That's when it's, you know, it just feels so hollow. So I also wrote about um, a show of works at Blue Orange in Houston by Michael Menchaca, a Texas artist whose name comes up rather often on Glass Tire. And one of the things that I thought was really successful about his exhibition was that he was making political work and acknowledging the full extent of the, the, the power dynamic of what he was talking about. Within the article, I compared it to there was a show, an anti-Trump art show at 
some space before that, and there was a painting of Donald Trump as a troll doll with a cell phone in either hand. And while you can look at it and maybe get a quick laugh because anyone as a troll doll could be potentially funny, it's kind of undermining the true sense of Donald Trump's position in the world and his true power. Whereas Michael Menchaca's piece, it was very powerful in that it showed Trump as like this demonized, crucified Jesus in a way. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, I thought it was really powerful and really smart because Michael in the work was able to acknowledge the fullest extent of what he and the world was trying to deal with and grapple with around the issue. And he wasn't kind of mm-hmm. underplaying or downplaying the the power dynamic of what happens. Because I feel like bad political art often does that. It, it often kind of just makes the situation seem a little lighter than it is or doesn't really acknowledge the potential to go wrong uh within a situation Mm -hmm. and i i think this could also go back to why barbara kruger's work works because it's a clear acknowledgement of the problem and then a clear rebuke of it sometimes in Mm -hmm. just one sentence yes yeah Thanks to our sponsor this week, the Rockport Center for the Arts, and their exhibition Illuminated Reflections, which features works by Angelie DeForest that are a tribute to life on the Texas coast. The artist's paintings, with their impressionistic and empathetic style, are an ode to Rockport's beauty and recovery after Hurricane Harvey. The show, which includes over 25 original works, is free and open to the public through July 27th at the Estelle Stair Gallery at 406 South Austin Street in downtown Rockport. For more info, visit rockportartcenter.com or call 361-729-5519. You know, there's still it's it's strange how people can still misconstrue or misread or decide to misread uh, certain art and certain messages. I think the 2016 censorship of David uh Voyerovich's work uh, that the Smithsonian had yanked out of New York is an example of that. You know, if you have a lot of anger in your work, uh, it can feel extreme to people who don't agree with your message or don't understand your message, and uh, it can get you it can get you into trouble because it feels too extreme, right? Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I was thinking about uh, recently, and I I hope that you don't mind me bringing this up, but I was thinking about the. Um, the murals in the San Francisco high school that are going to be either covered over or, um, or, or removed, which is uh, 13 WPA murals in a high school that depict the life of George Washington. It's in a high school called George Washington High School. And uh, these are Works Project Administration 1930s murals. And the artist, who was a Russian communist and also uh, an academic at Stanford and a well-known artist and a liked artist, um, he wasn't whitewashing, so to speak, um, Washington's life. So there are depictions of slavery and uh, Native American slaughter in these murals, and he was being incredibly critical of uh, colonialism, essentially. And yet there are some parents and maybe a few students who, even though they agree with this artist's message, which is now a very, very old message, considering these are very old murals. They're still demanding that this work be taken down. They don't want to see it. 
Um, they don't want to be confronted by, and they're not even thinking, and they're like, you know, and as far as they're concerned, they don't care about what the intention of the artist is. This is where things start to get very, very dangerous, I think, because censorship comes from both sides. It comes from the left and it comes from the right. And in this case, it's coming from the left. And if we lose these works of art, these actually very beautiful historical works of art, then we're really losing something in our in our American democracy, and it and it worries me. It worries me that artists could be very very angry, and put out extremely honest artwork, and that their audience will. It's not necessarily their direct audience, but their sort of indirect audience will not only not get it, but they'll shut it down. The issue of art being shut down is a thing that I feel like we always encounter, and it's something that always splits kind of everyone or most people within the art world. Well, I mean, there's a circular firing squad going on right now. We know this, that, you know, while the right-wing movement is sort of gleefully shitting all over everything and they don't they don't they won't be held accountable that's just that's their tactic and it seems to be working very well for them progressives and left-wing people will be held accountable that's part of you know our ethos is that that's how we work is if people call us out for things that they think that we're doing wrong we feel a responsibility to answer to that and so it's getting harder and harder for people uh, i want to say sort of on the left or who would uh, vote for a democratic candidate or whatever to be able to say what's on their minds without somebody else on the left shutting them down and art and art is suffering under that i think art right now is suffering under that i think there's a lot of good things happening in art and a lot of good political art being made but i think that there's probably a tremendous amount of muzzling happening as well and that's what's dangerous and that's what's bothering me increasingly and and of course you know in this already election season despite the fact that we're more than 400 days away from any election um you know, I'm keeping an eye on that, and I'm getting increasingly worried about uh, what our artists feel like they even have permission to put out in the world. And I hate it that artists would ever have to ask permission to put something out in the world. I feel like a lot of artists really do still feel an agency for that. I mean, at, at the same time, going back to how a, a lot of institutions are asking for this kind of thing, I think that kind of encourages artists to have... Uh, an active viewpoint on this yeah but what what kind of active viewpoint i mean their active viewpoint has to have a certain message in order to get the okay and i don't think people become artists in order to have a certain message that's already been pre-qualified you know um again artists are not saints i mean they shouldn't be held up to some they're not uh, role models. I don't think that, I mean, every once in a while there is an artist who becomes a role model, but, but if you think back on some of our best artists of the last generation or the last 200 years, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't think that they were trying to hold themselves up to any standard. I think that they were following their impulses and making the art that they wanted to make. That's the art that tends to be good. Again, the stuff where they're asking MFAs coming straight out of grad school to go into a residency to do a community activist project. And I just don't know how that art can be any good. Some of the artists who we think of as good political artists, like Karen Finley, are artists that had funding pulled because they weren't doing what they were supposed to or they were using that funding to quote, quote, do something that was 
problematic. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That kind, those kind of extremes that artists are are uh, capable of presenting, and they're really just holding a mirror up to society. But a lot of times, society doesn't want to see that reflection of of itself. Um, it's uncomfortable. It's scary. And, uh, you know, um, again, I just, I, I, I'm, I have to say I'm worried. In, in wrapping this up, I feel like we also have to acknowledge at least one kind of more historical piece of political art that still resonates or that I, I haven't done a ton of research to figure out how it was received at the time, but something like Francisco de Goya's Disasters of War. Oh, sure. Or Guernica, Picasso's Guernica. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I think there are some things that resonate there. Again, they're very, very strong. And again, I think they're born out of a very genuine emotion, a kind of despair, um, and a revulsion. Artists are human, and they feel things very strongly sometimes. And when they put it out there, and it feels honest, I think it, it can get to people. Also, sometimes, luckily, or when it when it lines up, an artist's anger and despair uh, lines up with uh, a population, and and they think, yeah, that's exactly how I think and feel. It's great when writers and artists and filmmakers and poets and musicians. Um, can give voice to something that a lot of people are feeling. So with that, uh, did you have a happy holiday? I did. Uh, Some of my holiday was actually looking back at some of our old 4th of July content, like reading Christopher Mm -hmm. Blaze's Does America, looking at our this and that with flag art. It was a good holiday, you know. As, as good as 4th of July can be. I, I saw fireworks, so I did the required acts as it were. I miss I miss the fireworks. One thing that really perked me up, though, is uh, I want to point uh, readers out to a, a profile that our, one of our regular contributors, Gene Fowler, has written about, Luis Jimenez. Um, it's great. Uh, Jimenez is one of my favorite artists, mm-hmm. period, just like in my top five favorite artists of all time. Uh, and it's nice to have this profile. He is a quintessentially American artist. Some of the work is quite political. Some of it is not. And it's all good. And I please read that. And uh, if you want to celebrate a great American artist, that's a good way to do it. Yeah, totally agreed. I'm so happy that June Fowler wrote this piece for us and that we have it on glass tire. Now it's time for a museum in Texas to do a major retrospective of his work. I can't believe it's not in the works at one of our big museums. I'm going to harass them about that. And uh, in the meantime, go see some art. Go see some art. Thank you to this week's Art Dirt sponsor, the Rockport Center for the Arts, and their exhibition Illuminated Reflections, which includes works by Angeli DeForest that are a tribute to life on the Texas coast. The paintings are impressionistic and empathetic, and they really serve as an ode to Rockport's beauty and recovery following Hurricane Harvey in 2017. The exhibition includes over 25 original works by Angeli DeForest and is free and open to the public right now through July 27, 2019 at the Estelle Stair Gallery at 406 South Austin Street in downtown Rockport. For more information on the show and the work, visit rockportartcenter.com or call 361-729-5519.